Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and R.J. Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Here we are on the Mockingcast, another week. We're into June, and uh, it's the last day of school here in Virginia, but I believe one of us is calling in from out of the country, and it's not Sarah. No, I'm actually, I'm home now. I'm in between. I'm in between between. trips. So we got home last night. I am broadcasting from sunny and humid Houston, Texas. I'm feeling chill. It's nice. It's a nice feeling. What is it from the sublime to the uh, beautiful? What's the mm. what's the phrase? The sublime to the ridiculous. From the sublime to ah, the ridiculous, yeah. or from the ridiculous to the sublime. Here we go. Our first piece was forwarded to me by Sarah Cleve Woodson in the Washington Post. Wrote an article about a obituary that's gone viral this past week. Is the obituary for Kathleen Demlo, and I have a feeling it was not self penned. This is how it reads. Kathleen Demlow was born on March 19, 1938, to Joseph and Gertrude Schunk of Wabasso. She married Dennis Demlow in 1957 and had two children, Gina and Jay. In 1962, she became pregnant by her husband's brother, Lyle, and moved to California. She abandoned her children, Gina and Jay, who were then raised by her parents. She passed away on May 31st, 2008, and will now face judgment. She will not be missed by Gina and Jay, and they understand that this world is a better place without her. This was just gone viral, naturally, because usually obituaries are times when people you know, put the best face they can on the person who's died, even if they don't really love them. The Washington Post interviewed actually a woman who's an obituary specialist, and she says, people don't generally speak ill of the dead. Susan Soper is her name. In fact, sometimes they will put the best possible face on a person in the obituary and overlook whatever the misdeeds or characteristics that might be unpleasant. But not always. And then she goes on to write about the family of uh, Leslie Popeye Charping of Galveston, Texas. Was uh, His family was similarly elated at his passing last year. They wrote in his obituary, Leslie's hobbies included being abusive to his family, expediting trips to heaven for the beloved family pets, and fishing. Uh, with Leslie's passing, he will be missed only for what he never did, being a loving husband, father, and good friend. Oh, so that's a, that's a great uh, thanks, Sarah, for bringing uh, for uh, well, know. but you know, it's like my favorite Venn diagram, right? It's like completely devastatingly sad and horrible, and also totally hilarious. I mean, it's like the best, it's like the best two things. I mean, those are my favorite things because it is super, super sad that this is like the legacy that these people have left and that. They've obviously like wounded, you know, their children usually, right? Usually it seems like this is a parent to child kind of thing that we see. And then, and then also like, it's funny to think about what a real obituary looks like. And, you know, um, funny to think about what would be said, you know, by any of, about any of us, by any number of people that we love, um, in an honest way. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, it. it's funny. This got posted on a, in a group I'm a part of that's like very, very focused on grace theology and people had lots of lots of different responses but mostly people were really sad and i kind of felt like i had to filter how funny i thought it was because it is i don't know there's something funny about it plus like the picture of her that they chose she just looks like someone snapped you know like you always have like right you'll see these women who are you know they died at 92 and there's this like picture of them as like a 25 year old bombshell you know and like Poor old mm-hmm. Kathleen, man, that did not happen to her. You know, no, they got like the no. most confused looking photograph of Kathleen and slapped it in the newspaper. So, you know, and it's, uh, I guess it's relevant to our lives right now. My father-in-law passed away two weeks ago and we have a complicated family. Like a lot of people have complicated families and there has not been an obituary. So um, it was interesting to sort of have this pop up. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know that that's been happening in your family, uh, Sarah. So did, did, uh, who is responsible for writing the obituary? That's always the interesting question. Um, so in my own, in my family of origin, my dad always writes the obituaries because he's the writer in the family, but, uh, my, (laughs) my husband's family doesn't have the built-in writer system. So what has ended up happening is that my husband wrote this completely beautiful, um, sort of memory of his dad as the church newsletter this past week. And um, we had an old picture of him from the seventies with his dad at Easter and he put it up there and, you know, I mean, he said to me later, it would have been weird for dad to have been on the internet. That was not like his dad was not the kind of guy that would have wanted that. But, um, but it's given us a way to kind of process it out loud and, you know, it's not bad for a church for the pastor to be like, Hey, families are complicated. Ours too. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm. I think that's its own gift. RJ, what do you think? Made me think about a couple things. One is just that families are complicated. There are people who are not nice out there. You right. know, I, 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 I have a good, I have a good friend who's, I think her grandfather's first wife passed away and then grandfather got remarried to a woman that was just really, really awful to my friend and to her siblings and would force them to sit quietly and, and wouldn't let them sleep in beds, made them sleep on floors and was just really awful to visit. I, I mean, it did make me wonder reading this obituary, whether this woman's California family wrote a separate obituary, you know, whether yeah. that that pregnancy ended up sort of resulting in a child and whether there was a second obituary written by the second family out in California. So, um, yeah, just a reminder that, as you said, Sarah, families can be very complicated and sometimes people can just be mean, you know, and at the same time made me think of a funeral I did a little while back where the man who had died had probably not been the best father to his children and had taken off and spent some time kind of traveling the world and not being terribly present. And I think also probably struggled with some addiction issues, but I talked to his son who gave the remarks at his funeral and he said, you know, RJ, the funny thing is like, yes, it's true. Like my father maybe wasn't all that he could have been, but as soon as he passed, he's like, I have no bitterness. He's like, I just, I'm remembering like the good times we spent together. And I feel like I've forgiven him. And I thought that was a pretty amazing, beautiful thing that God had, you know, in his grace allowed this son to forgive his father. And yet also to carry this good news, because his father, I think, was a man of faith, despite his many failings to say, you know, this is not the end of your relationship. You know, you guys are going to see each other again. And maybe those things that you weren't able to say, or didn't get a chance to hear, or the resolution that you might want that you didn't get, that there will be another chance to to do that, you know, and, and apart from some kind of 
you know, hopeful message about the afterlife. It is sad to think how much regret and pain there is out there. Golly, you guys have like serious thoughts about this. I, I what it reminded me of was of that uh, obituary that appeared a couple of years ago that I think we wrote about you know, in 2012. Val Patterson, a scientist from Salt Lake City who used his obituary to like get a bunch of things off his chest. Oh like, yeah. 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 He like wrote to that hotel and was like, by the way, I was the one who stole the safe out of room 203. And then he said, <laughs> uh, he was, he said that he didn't have a doctorate in engineering, that he hadn't even graduated from college. And this is from the obituary. He said, what happened was that the day I went to pay off my college student loan at the university of Utah, the girl working there put my receipt into the wrong stack. And two weeks later, a PhD diploma came in the mail. I didn't even graduate. I had only about three years of college credit. In fact, I never did even learn what the letters PhD even stood for. For all the electronic engineers I've worked with, I'm sorry, but you have to admit my designs always worked well, and I always made you laugh at work. So That's awesome. That's where my mind went, guys. Crazy. But I also, you know, Sarah, I'm, I'm like you. I read that, and I, I immediately sort of guffawed because you're just not expecting it when that no. paragraph about Catherine no. Demwa is like, she became pregnant by her husband's brother, Lyle, and then moved to California. It's just not when you see the picture of kind of like, even if she's confused, she still looks like like an know, old lady, quaint grandma type. Right. And yeah. you forget, you know, as much as we think we're probably an ageist society and we overvalue youth and we disrespect our elders and all that stuff. We also have this understanding, like we see someone who's old and we presume that they haven't lived a life full of complication and dysfunction and sin. In fact, yeah. you know, I can tell you stories from my own family, but you know, this is of course, this also made us think this week of, uh, you know, the, the, the news, the shocking news about Kate Spade. I know, when I was at my college, the girls in our sort of circle, Kate Spade was definitely a status thing, you know, whether or not you had a Kate Spade bag and then there were shops everywhere. And I don't, I, I don't, I feel like maybe she, her brand had lost its luster in recent years, but she's so iconic. And, um, but uh, what did, did this affect you guys? Cause she did commit suicide in a pretty dramatic way. I think it, she hung herself by a scarf. Yeah. It's actually strangely really affected us because we, uh, Jamie, my wife knew her because our kids went to preschool together oh, in New York no, City. Oh, no, you guys. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. And, um, and it seems kind of strange because, you know, we haven't, I mean, that was what now, I don't know, nine or 10 years ago or something. But Jamie just remembers her always being like very sweet and very mm. down to earth at kind of this, you know, pretty upper crusty, like, you know, Upper East Side preschool. You know, our kids are the same age. So we have a 13 year old. She has a 13 year old just thinking through my gosh, what must that be like for her daughter? And then I sort of said to Jamie last night, I said, I said, why is this hitting you so hard? I said, is this maybe the closest suicide you have mm. to you in terms of your like life experience and your age? And, and she's been texting with a bunch of her friends in New York who also knew her. They're sort of a little, you know, text group of other parents from that preschool. But Jamie said, yeah, she said, you know, it just, um, it really hits home. And she said, I don't know, being a mom is hard. Being a mom, you know, no matter what Kate was dealing with, I guess she had some depression, she had some anxiety, but like life is hard. Being a mom is hard, but it has hit us a little bit actually the last three, three, four days. And it's been kind of sad, but also, you know, created some introspection, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, hearing about kind of the, um, the fashion climate that she came of age in when we think about the Kate Moss kind of heroin chic minimalist stuff. 
And Kate comes on the scene and there's like color and life and vibrancy and beauty. And, you know, there's been some critiques I've seen, especially from the left, where people have said, you know, we're making too big a deal of this. And like, you know, this is such a classist issue because no one, you know, so many people couldn't afford Kate Spade. And I actually never owned a Kate Spade purse. I just don't spend a lot of money on purses, but I'm so grateful for her because like, if you walk into a target today and you pick out a Navy swimsuit and it has like a really cute pattern, you know, with flamingos on it and it's kind of preppy, that's Kate Spade. I mean, she has influenced so much of what we've seen come out of American fashion at every level that people could buy it at. And so she was an incredible creative force. And this is just such a terrible way to lose her. Yeah, gosh, I mean, I, it, this is such an uh, epidemic, and, and we, we, I'm tired of talking about it too. In, in a way, you know, Sarah, you feel sheepish about another another week, another right. another extremely successful person uh, who everyone is uh, sort of jealous of from mm-hmm. a distance uh, is in terms is in quiet uh, in enormous amounts of despair and unaddressed mental illness or addressed mental illness and just anguish and. I don't know. It, it's absolutely heartbreaking. It's been the story of our year here, and it's um, I, it's only going to continue. So it, it makes me not to downplay this incident. I feel for this for her daughter, of course. Um, there's no real easy way to transition from that to the next thing. So we'll just I'll just jump in this long essay that actually Will wrote about last week from John Baskin in The Point, which is what he calls one of these little magazines that was sort of a like uh, McSweeney's or N Plus One. And it's a magazine that's called Tired of Winning. And this is a guy, Baskin, he'd worked for a um, kind of, a, I guess, a liberal think tank in Washington and talks about that experience and then moves into sort of what it says more largely about the interplay between intellectual pursuit and political advocacy because it feels to me as someone who's been reading this stuff and spends well probably too much time reading this stuff is that the two have become intertwined to a maybe uh, some would say exciting extent some would say boring or a tiresome extent i'd be on the second side of that but this is this is what he's right he said what was held to be paramount at the center for american progress that's what the thing tank was to quote unquote win the narrative of the daily political news cycle this required little academic investigation or insight. It did demand, however, an education in a certain kind of rhetoric. The paragraph, the sentence, even the individual word revealed themselves as potential foot soldiers in the battle for public opinion and political power. There was no other goal besides winning. To be progressive at the Center for American Progress was to be on the side of reality. It was also to believe reality was on one side. This was very convenient. It meant that there were no questions, only answers, or you might say only questions of strategy, but not substance. And so he leaves Washington and he talks about going to New York because he wants to get involved in real intellectual debates where the intellectuals are not the captives of the legislators. And he starts working for a couple of these small magazines, uh, all very left-leaning. And he says, we were not merely going to report on progress. We were going to make it. It was exhilarating to try and live this way. It invested what might seem like trivial everyday decisions with world historical import. Eventually, though, I began to notice in myself a tension that also existed at the heart of our project. My aesthetic and cultural taste did not always or often match the direction the magazines were trying to take me politically. 
This had not troubled me before because I'd never considered that, quote, everything is in the last analysis political. That's the mantra that we hear these days from mm-hmm. Frederick Jameson. Um, but now I had come to see that politics were not just an activity people engaged in at certain times. It was something that infused every aspect of one's experience, from which from which big box store you shopped at for your year's supply of toilet paper to what restaurants you chose to eat at to who you chose to sleep with. This was what it meant to, quote, have a politics that everything I did ought to be disciplined by my politics. But what if it wasn't? Should I then revise my politics or myself? Now, that's the great question. And when Will talked about it, he talked about how political ideologies have this totalizing effect on us, and they sort of claim to explain absolutely everything, which that that quote, sort of that mantra um, refers to. And yet, you run into the perennial problem that anyone who's religious has, of course, run into many times. It's like there's the way the world should be, and these convictions I say that I espouse, and then there's the way the world actually is, and who I actually am, and how do we resolve that tension? And if you're working in a system or if you're married to a system that is really only about discerning right from wrong and doesn't like, at least Christianity has a forgiveness theoretically, um, you know, as a part of the ingredient and it, you know, to be a Christian is to be often tortured over this gap between what ought to be and what is. And so if there's no even default back to mercy, then how do you live? And it's the great question. Do you revise your politics or yourself? Do you revise your religion or do you revise yourself? Um, there's more to say about it, but I thought I'd get y'all's thoughts before y'all. I can't believe I just said y'all. I thought I'd get your thoughts before. Um, <laughs> no, I, I guess this is a very now specific reaction, but having been kind of off the grid for about 10 days and coming back into this, you know, it, it suddenly makes me realize why people decide to just go on sort of fast from media, you know, because I hear I, I, the article was great and I heard what he was saying. And yet it also just made me anxious and, and sad and, and this, the, the winning the debate. And I remember when center for American progress started, it was kind of a big deal, you know, cause there were all the, there was the heritage foundation and all these kind of right leaning think tanks that seemed to be quote unquote winning and, and Podesta and everyone was going to start this new think tank that was going to have this profound impact. And I think, you know, to some degree, did on the um, Obama presidency. I don't, but even when we were on vacation, my son asked me, because we were listening to music from the 80s and then the 90s, and the kids were asking, what were the 80s like or the 90s like? And they're like, what are they, people going to say the 2010s were like? And I said, I think people are going to talk about the incredible, jarring juxtaposition between a Barack Obama and Donald Trump. You know, like, can you imagine sort of two more dissimilar presidents, you know? And yet that's such a, it's an example for me of what seems to be true, that just so much of American political life is just one reaction after another. It's reaction against the reaction against the reaction against the reaction. And and as he says, there's so little time for thinking, for relationship development, for encountering people who are different from you, for encountering people who are similar from you in some ways and different from you in others. But I admire the article. I admired his desire and, and I guess what led to him founding the point, you know, having a place where people could actually just sort of say what they were thinking and not fit into one little box. But again, those aren't the loudest voices in our culture. You know, it's kind of Fox News versus, I don't know, MSNBC or something like that. But again, coming back after vacations, like, do I do I want to re-engage with this stuff? Like, maybe I, maybe I don't. Do I have a choice uh, whether or not to? Because it's so all-encompassing. But yeah, it was a heavy article. 
I feel like in life, every time I try to define myself by something, especially if it's like an ultimate goal of righteousness, I'm so quickly reminded that I'm going to fall short of that. And then that's not where my identity is. Mm. And it's always jarring. But I mean, even like yesterday, I was talking to a colleague of mine about hospitals and she was like, do you like hospitals? And I was like, I love, I love going to hospitals. I love visiting people at hospitals. Like it's my whole pastoral presence. And I'm like really good at it. I'm such a giver. And then today, like I rolled up to do hospitals and it's like 450 degrees outside. I get to the first place, which I drive 25 minutes to angry the whole time. And the guy's in some sort of patients in some sort of therapy that I can't get to. So great. Okay. Right. So then I get my car mad and then I drive to this other hospital where I can't find any parking. So I can't see these people. And I'm like, all I could think about is the conversation I had the day before where I had defined myself as like the Oprah of hospital visits. So I don't know what people do. Like, I literally don't know how you survive when your whole identity is bound up in a political affiliation because this is just hospital visits. You know what I mean? Like to have those choices that you have to make all the time, constantly, like we were in our neighborhood uh, this past week my son finished school and they do this thing in the neighborhood where all the fifth graders, cause he's in the neighborhood school, all the fifth graders parade down the street and all the kids throw water balloons at them. And it turns into this like giant water balloon fight between the dads. And it lasts for like 45 minutes and they do the water balloons. I don't know if you guys, your kids have done these, but they're the ones you just put in the hose. Right. Yeah, and so yeah. you can make a hundred mm-hmm. water balloons in like five minutes. So it's so like there's these like shards of water balloons everywhere. And I'm like, you know, we live in a more conservative area and, you know, I'm and I don't know. And there's all sorts of baggage that can come with that for people or whatever. I grew up in Mississippi. I'm sort of used to it. But I was with this mom and she just looked down at all the balloons, like shards, like everywhere, all over everyone's like for just a whole straight. And she goes, well, the kids had fun, but this is an environmental nightmare. And I was like, I love that you just like name the reality of like what this is. And then we're just going to have to move on from it. Right. Cause we can't meet that law. And so I don't know how people survive when they're constantly like, you know, I mean, you talk about the big box thing, obviously that's the conversation between Walmart and Costco, right? Well, Costco pays fair wages, Costco, this Costco, that Costco, this Costco, that. And I have plenty of people I know who are Democrats who are like, mourn every time they have to go into Sam's club, you know? And I'm like, that's exhaustive. So I don't know. Uh, th- this phrase though, what's your politics? You know, I, I never have, uh, right. I, I, this is the kind of, I have a politics. It really is a way of talking about, it's a code that everything I do is consistent. It's and a religious question. Right. It's a, it's, it's, a, also, it's a religious yeah. question. And it's, yeah. it's not only, I mean, and he talks about how, you know, at one intellectual argument was the assistant to the legislator in DC. And now it's become the willing tool of the activist at any time, sort of some ideas become, the instrument of one particular end, even if it's religious, you know, they cease to really be ideas. He says, in attempting to discipline our desires to our political convictions, we might allow our ideology to overrun our intellect. You know, you think that that is exactly what's going on. And then then he says, when everything is political, everything is threatened by the tendency of the political to reduce thinking to positioning. In other words, everything becomes, every word I utter, every action I undertake, every email I send becomes a, a 
self-justification uh, for or a justification a, according to this politics I say I espouse. And anything that doesn't fit it, I have to hide. And and but the, the ultimate thing he says is he's endorsing a conversation. I really like this guy's perspective about modern life that includes, but it's not limited to political conviction. Some things we believe are in the last analysis poetic, some spiritual, some psychological, some moral. Now that is an extremely subversive thing to say, especially in the space in which he's saying it. To say that no, not actually everything is ultimately a political question. In fact, we believe in a spiritual reality. We believe that God is above and before and beyond and, and all of these things. And to, to put all of our hope in political processes, it doesn't mean that we don't put any hope in them, but to put all of our hope is just a, is tantamount to a denial that there are any other factors at work. And I always, so I, I see it as a cult of despair. Um, ultimately, it's a lot of what's going on. So that's what, what drew me to the piece. RJ, you were about to say something. I just thought it was, that what you read, you know, our ideology trumps our, what was it, ideology trumps? Uh, our, it overruns our in- intellect. Intellect, exactly. He's basically, what he's saying about his own particular, you know, in this case, left-leaning paradigm is exactly what people accuse the church of all the time, right? In order to become a Christian, you have to check your brain at the door. Right, yeah. that your ideology overcomes your intellect, and he's saying, no, actually, that's true of this most the most intellectual possible space you can imagine. You know, these these uh, very elitist, you know, left leaning magazines. That's exactly what he had to do to check his brain at the door in order to meet the incredibly stringent demands of that particular religious space. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it also made me think, and not to be too Christian about it, is that this is one of the huge benefits of belonging to a church. You know, that in general, no matter. I mean, I'm sure this isn't a hundred percent. But I have found, you know, no matter how homogenous a church seems to be from the outside, uh, you know, when you actually get into a church, you're going to meet a lot of people who disagree with you, who are different than you, who think differently than you, who have different politics than you do. And it's not, you know, I think most people imagine church to be a total echo chamber where everyone agrees about everything. And that is just totally not the case at all. And it it forces you to bump up against people who are not like you, you know, as he says in there, you know, he he works for these left-leaning magazines that claim to speak for the, you know, the proletariat, and yet none of those people had any, you know, none of the writers had any contact with the proletariat whatsoever. Or they'd had to escape um, the proletariat in order to write for these magazines. Exactly. And yeah. they're also writing magazines that nobody from that particular, you know, social class are ever going to read or or engage with. Um, and it does remind me, if I talked about this before, this amazing book, um, Oh gosh, written by a Berkeley sociologist called, uh, I can't remember, Strangers in Their Own Land, where this Berkeley sociologist goes and lives in kind of uh, Louisiana, you know, in some polluted parts of Louisiana for five years, getting to know Tea like, Party like and Like where voters. my people are from. Well, exactly, I hate to say, but yes, exactly. But it's like Louisiana. And she, no, but she, I mean, I didn't say that. Those are your words, not mine, Sarah. Don't, don't hate, don't hate. Um, no, but she talks about um, sort of scaling the empathy wall, you know, and actually listening to people and talking to them and realizing that their political convictions and the way they see the world is not totally insane. Like they have reasons for thinking the way that they do. And they've been, um, they have been abused by government, you know, things like that. Like there's a reason they're not pro-government. Um 
And, you know, people that we, you know, people that on a certain side of the political spectrum look at and say, oh, those people are crazy. They're not crazy, you know, and needs to be a little bit more sympathy and empathy and talking and relationships. And and smelling, RJ. Smelling. I just think it's all, I just think it's all drugs though, right? Like, I think this is all drugs. I think this is just like the drug that people are on and it's like their political drug. And that's like. What makes them feel good? What's help? What helps them make decisions? It's like it's like an acceptable like politics right now, especially being really dogmatic. It's like an acceptable addiction, right? Like you can wreck your life for it. You make life choices. You can alienate family members for it, right? Because it's politics. Like there's a guy I'm friends with through social media who's a pastor. His name's Ryan Couch, and he the other day he wrote. Um, Oh my uh, gosh. Self-righteousness. Do you know, Ryan? No, no. I, I saw what you posted. Of it's so it's good. A, Self-righteousness is a hallucinogenic. And I was like, yes, that is so true. Like, I don't exactly know what a hallucinogenic feels like, but I do know what an epidural feels like. And Did you go to school in Santa Fe? I find it hard to believe. <laughs> you got to start reading Sarah. some Michael I read the Bible a lot when I was at school in Santa Fe. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it's, it's, it's very powerful. Like it's, it's a drug. It's just an acceptable drug yeah, for like a week, for a week, for well, a week. It's really fun to be in a room with people who all agree with you and affirm you until you realize that they, you actually don't agree about everything. Yeah. You know? And yeah. Uh, for, for a week, it's really fun until it becomes incredibly depressing and uh, scary. You and know? people start to, the part, the, it, you start to find inner rings within the inner ring. But this is actually this week. The reason we brought, brought this up, it's kind of an abstract conversation was, is the, um, that Elizabeth, Brunig once again writing something amazing for the Washington Post. She says we are no longer capable of forgiving our enemies, and by that she's talking about uh, the what happened with Roseanne Barr, her racist tweet, and then Samantha B uh, saying a, a obscenity about Ivanka um, Trump. And uh, she says she talks about this being sort of uh, the moment you know uh, people who are upset that Roseanne got fired. Then they're looking for someone on the the left to vilify. And Samantha B uh, presents herself very uh, willingly. It looks like, and it, it just it's it's this cycle of provocation and uh, vindication of provocation and retribution. She says that that's bad news for societies because there are undoubtedly bad lessons in civic virtue, especially if we still purport to be some. Thing like a liberal democracy whose key tenant is tolerance, a tough asset to claim if you're perpetually scanning the horizon for things to be disruptively furious about. But, but they're worse than that, this sort of cycle. They are terrible moral lessons and they make us into bad people. And this is what she says if forgiveness had a face, it would be hideous. It would be hideous to us now. Mm. We wouldn't be able to look at forgiveness without revulsion. Because forgiveness means having the technical right to exact some penalty, but electing not to pursue it. This breaks the cycle of retribution with unearned, undeserved mercy. The face of forgiveness is bruised because it bears its own injuries with grace. So doing permits the cycle of retribution to go no further. It is a hard thing, but necessary if huge numbers of strangers are going to live together peacefully. It's the total absence of forgiveness from our cultural logic that makes any penalties whatsoever feel terminal. Ask yourself, what would it take for you to forgive whichever of these two women who have offended you more? Not just to ignore them or release them into the icy waters of vague contempt, but to wish them well or well enough and perhaps one day give them the chance to make you laugh. If forgiveness had a face, we would find it hideous. That is... uh, 
that is poetic. And, oh my gosh. Um, unbelievably profound, I think. And it cuts to the core because, you know, I have my own ideological others and maybe they have Christian faces uh, or uh, it's, it's sectarian stuff or it's, um, you know, we're all whatever identities that we're caught up in. We have it, it, uh, what I'm say, trying to say is that it convicts me as a sinful person who's engaged in, who hasn't taken a vacation this last week and is caught up in the narratives and trying to win them and maybe to win them for Mockingbird or win them for Grace. I don't know what it is, but it is um, certainly uh, for, forgiveness. The face of forgiveness is bruised because it bears its own injuries with grace. Mm. let's put let's put a, a, a bumper sticker of that guys and it's so uh, good put it on our forehead it's so jesusy it's so good <laughs> um yeah. yeah so i keep thinking about uh, i actually i had therapy today and um we were talking about like when you yell at your kids like <clears throat> or you know i whatever, have no idea what you're talking wave about, your arms Sarah. in the air and or make yourself really big this is something that something I do is um, if my son is not moving fast enough, I'll kind of chase him up the stairs, which is not nice. And um, in therapy, she has told me that sometimes when we do things to other people, but in this case, our children, we just want to be like, Oh, I'm sorry. And then, and then move on. And really that then makes the whole thing still about us. Right. It's like that we've said, we're sorry. And, and Mm. she said that she said, actually what you need to say is, how did it make you feel? Because that's what people are actually looking for in that moment is like, how did this make you feel? And, um, and you know, if you ask my seven year old, how does it make you feel when mama chases you upstairs? He's like really scary. Cause you're big. And I'm like, Oh, um, so I think if we were to ask people from the Roseanne perspective, honestly, I find both of these things, you can't even say what Samantha B said, but, mm. um, both of these things are pretty horrible. Um, I think if I were to say, how did it make me feel? It makes me feel like disgusting and it makes me feel sort of disgust in general and probably really just disgust at myself, right? Disgust that, um, you know, I'm two beers away from saying something awful, <laughs> like disgust that, uh, that, that this is actually base reality of human nature. And, um, and I think that's why, when these things happen, it is this inclination we have to just shut them off, you know, to shut it away because we don't want to look at it and we don't want to look at that part of ourselves. And, and, you know, and we don't, we don't want to look at people we've hurt and say, well, how did that make you feel? So. Yeah. We're not a forgiving culture. We, I was just thinking about this. Are we, we do forget things, you know, I think about, um, sorry to bring sports up, but Kobe Bryant, you know, the sort of Hall of Fame guard for the Los Angeles Lakers who won an Oscar last year. Remember that? Well, you guys didn't watch the Oscars. I watched the Oscars. Uh, he won an Oscar for a, um, uh, a short feature animated film that he was involved in. Huh. But do you remember what he did like 10 years ago in Colorado? Uh-huh. You don't remember because you don't know. I, I don't really, I mean, he, <laughs> he probably raped someone. In Colorado. Oh, right. I remember this. Yeah. Remember that? Mm -hmm. And there was a whole big trial went on for months and months and months and months. Yeah. But nobody talks about that 10 years later. And I don't know if he's been forgiven. I think it's been forgotten. And I can pretty much guarantee that in a year or two, no one's really going to remember Samantha B or Roseanne Barr and what, what happened. Um, 
And again, and then the other thing I thought, you know, the title of this article, we are no longer capable of forgiving our enemies. And the enemies thing is really important because we will forgive our friends of anything. You know, we will forgive our po favorite, favorite politicians of anything. You know, there was that, um, you know, that I didn't watch it, but I heard really uncomfortable Bill Clinton interview oh, this week on, oh, it was, yeah. did you watch it? It was terrible, no, right? No, I didn't watch it, but I mean, I've heard, I've heard the stuff, it, the, but he's all, he's the best example for this, right? I mean, I well, come from Southern Democrats. Now, yeah, now people like, want to get after him because we're brutal. in the middle of the Me Too movement and because Trump is yes. president. But 20 years ago, man, yeah. Democrats were making, I remember this, were making every possible excuse about the division between yes. private and public life. And it's just the exact same thing where, you know, you'll, you'll forgive your friends and anything you'll impute righteousness to them but but people you don't like and you'll you won't forgive anything and that also i always wonder how is it that couples you know people that are married or people that are friends can so quickly go from being in love to just totally hating each other and it just again i, I hate to harp on this but it's i feel like this has been an insight for me recently it just all again comes down to imputation if mm -hmm. you love someone and they're your friend and you're on their side you will forgive them of anything but once you sort of cross that border once you turn that corner everything's out the window and nothing is forgivable and everything is wrong and we can make that switch pretty quickly people can make that switch between love and hate incredibly quickly um so anyway i think we're you know we're not a forgiving culture we are a forgetful culture i think yeah and you also wonder the the there's a it's a brilliant title but uh, you know, we've never been capable of forgiving our enemies. And, yeah. you know, this is why, um, it is, it's so unfashionable to say that the sinner is actually the enemy of God, um, mm. in rebellion. And, uh, you know, we want to say, no, we're just sick or no, we're just, um, you know, just basically just, on just God's side, dysfunctional. <laughs> and, you know, th those, those things are true that those, that, that there is sickness to it, but to, to be rebellious and to be actually to make God your enemy is a different story. And yet mm. the gospel here is that, you know, God actually forgives us as enemies, you know, not just as, not just making us whole, not just reconciling him to lost children, but to forgive one's enemies, that which we cannot do. And that which convicts us as like, you know, I wish, uh, it might not just be in my nature, unfortunately to forgive this person that I really feel is my enemy. I, 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 I know I should, but I can't. And, um, my hope, my ultimate existential, spiritual, religious, deep hope of my soul is that God can, uh, can and has and will forgive me as uh, an enemy uh, of the cross, as the one who put him there, not just the one who stood by and let it happen, but the one, you know, it's that great Mark Mattis or Stephen Paulson line, I forget who did it at Mockingbird, is like, did you make a decision for Christ? And, and he said, yes, I made a decision to drive the nail through his hand. Right. <laughs> and uh, I mean, that sounds so dark. Right. And yet, if we're in a world in which we are making enemies of people that we cannot forgive, and that, that means that we are someone else's enemy that will not forgive us, then it's actually tremendously hopeful. Mm -hmm. It's tremendously hopeful because it means that God came to forgive not just his friends, but his enemies. And we are all that. And it reminded me ultimately of this final uh, thing we just wanted to talk briefly about Alan Jacobs' um, talk from the conference, which was so... Uh, powerful and germane and he it's called seas of renewal and we were able to post a bit of it on the site and he talks about our need to draw these boundaries and to um turn people into 
ideological puppets for our own self-justification. And he's, what he does is he looks at the transfiguration of what happens immediately after the transfiguration is the leader of the disciples. Peter gets excited about being on the mountain and wants to stay there. Then he takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Then they argue about which of the disciples is the coolest and the best. Then they don't understand his talk about death. They're afraid to ask him what he means. Then they get really mad when they see someone else is healing people in Jesus's name and want to stop that bad person. They also get really mad when people in a town won't listen to Jesus and want to call down fire from heaven and blast these chumps to cinders because isn't that what prophets do? And we're like way better than Elijah, right? So basically Jesus has chosen as his followers a bunch of seven-year-olds. He wants them to preach, heal, and embrace patiently the suffering that accompanies following him. They, by contrast, want to be victorious, receive praise, and smack down people they feel disrespect them or want to muscle in on their territory. As my friend Freddie DeBoer says these days, that these days everyone's a cop. He says, I think the characteristic sin of our moment, this is Jacob's, is not anything sexual, but wrath. Wrath is the characteristic sin of our age. And the 12 exemplify that. Rather than doing what they're told to do, which requires being loving toward others and the, con- and the conquest of their own fear and pride, they are continually attentive to what they think everyone else is doing wrong, whether it's ignoring Jesus or following him from the wrong uh, social location. This is a problem throughout the, dis- the Gospels. The s- disciples and lookers-on alike are far more interested in other people and what God is going to do to those other people than the state of their own souls. People ask Jesus uh, whether many will be saved or only a few, and he responds, why don't you work on entering through that narrow gate? They ask whether those people at the Tower of Siloam fell on were especially bad sinners, and he says, they're no worse than you. When Jesus tells Peter how he will die, Peter says, well, okay, but what about John? To which Jesus replies, what is that to you? How is that any of your business? And then to cover a whole, the whole general phenomenon, Jesus asks, why are you worried about the specks in other people's eyes when you have logs in your own? The answer is clear. We really and truly believe that we're the ones with the specs and they're the ones with the log. We're hallucinating, to quote the Sarah's friend. Hmm. But Jesus tells us otherwise. Why don't we try believing him and see how that works? Mm. Because it sucks. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. I don't want to know how you feel. I don't care how I've hurt you. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's always like I just wonder what would happen, you know, if we were in the middle, you know, we've this past year and gosh, Dave, you've seen this more than we have, but just these horrible protests and, you know, I mean, people from both sides there and there's violence and there's fear and there's guns and there, you know. And just like, what would it look like if we, I feel like this is such like an ideal, idealistic thing to say, but like, what would we look like if we, what would it look like if we showed up and we remembered that we were the sinners? Like, what would it look like if we showed up to, to do this kind of work? And a lot of this is like good gospel justice work that people are doing. But what if, what would it look like if we remembered we were sinners when we were doing it? Cause I think we just, you know, it's like, a, it is, I mean, that thing, I mean, that should be the title of this episode, like self-righteousness is, <laughs> is a hallucinogen, but it's like, you really, once you step into that space, I mean, only God, only God can embody the law and the graciousness, like only God can. It's so hard for us to do it. And we live in a time 
where there's so much law and it's, and it's so, it's just so tempting to step into it and to be dogmatic and to claim the other people as the ones who are wrong. And, um, and I just don't, I, I wonder if the human soul is even capable of, of holding both of those ideals at the same time. Does that make any sense? I don't know. It does. And, and at the same time, it's so, um, it's incredibly comforting and reassuring when you uh, hear someone who actually sort of wants to tell the truth and wants to engage people as people. You know, I, I don't know how our listeners feel about like this American life and Ira Glass. Like clearly he's more on the left side of the spectrum, but I do feel like he, one of his geniuses is that he actually listens to people Yeah, and he hears what they has to say. And he, um, and he, um, sort of not expects the best of them, but he, you know, imputes righteousness to them. You know, he, he treats them as better than they are. And he's curious, you know, he's curious about where they come from and how they got to be there. And, and when you hear that, it just feels different. It's not the, um, it's not the sort of momentary endorphin rush of finding someone who agrees with everything that you have to say. Um, you know, which then also has a crash, you know, there's like the, there's the ascent and the the, the crash of self-loathing at the end, but it just feels good. Um, and it's a lot more likely to make you, um, cry and make you a better, a better spouse and a better parent and a better friend. So maybe that's the thing is just to dwell on those, um, voices in our culture that are more gracious and not more, um, self-justifying. Amen to that. Like you, Dave. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, two beers, man. It's all over. Yeah, all that nice guy exactly. stuff. <laughs> or a <Yeah>. pizza. <laughs> For me, it's a pizza. That's more Dave's That's style. Right. Just yeah. a lot of carbs and all the truth comes out. Carb them up, baby. Was, yeah. Shush. No, well, this is maybe one of the many reasons why I, I go to church every week to hear about yeah. a, a gracious God. But I do look forward to hearing from you guys again soon. We'll see you in a couple weeks, right? In a yeah. couple weeks. Okay. Arrivederci. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.